Welcome to Facilitating the Mission, the podcast of Shepherd Staff Mission Facilitators. My name is Brian Mondock. And my name is Jeff Jackson. Brian, what's going on, man? Jeff Jackson. I am so excited to see you next week in San Diego. Yeah, although it's on uh, sad circumstances, it's going to be a blessing to, to see you and Aaron out here face to face. We can't wait to see it. Jeff, why don't you introduce our guest? I would love to do that. Well, Brian, you know, you and I have talked many times in these podcasts about, you know, just the importance of understanding the scripture sort of maybe through a different lens than we normally do being born and raised in American culture. And, you know, you and I both having background in the military and that whole experience of basic training sort of crushing American cultural values out of us and then sort of reconstructing us into a, you know, a collectivistic sort of, you know, honor, shame, uh, operating culture within the military. You know, we've talked about that a lot over the years and, uh, and the reality that a lot of our missionaries, the people that we serve are living in amongst people that are of collectivistic cultures that are sort of face-based and honor and shame oriented. And as I've done research and study on it over the years, I came across this guy who actually, his first name is my last name. <laughs> his name is Jack, Jackson Wu. <laughs> so I, uh, I stumbled across his stuff years ago. Uh, first, his book, uh, Saving God's Face, um, about you know sort of reframing the gospel for China. And then as I've gotten more and more involved in sort of the whole honor-shame world, I've gotten, kind of gotten to know him and have really appreciated his other writings, One Gospel for All Nations, and then... Um, uh, his latest one, Reading Romans Through Eastern Eyes. And so I got to meet him face-to-face -face a couple of years ago at that first Honor Shame conference at Wheaton. And then he was here in San Diego a while back, and I was able to get together with him again. And I just thought, you know, this, although this isn't really specifically in the wheelhouse of what we do as a ministry, as far as facilitating local churches to send their own, it really is relevant because, uh, you know, hey, most of the missionaries that we facilitate are working in the context of these uh, collectivistic honor shame based cultures. So long intro to say that uh, God's gonna given us the blessing to have Jackson Wu on with us today. So, hey, hey, Jackson, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, so hey, Jackson, I know that, uh, you know, that recently you sort of resettled, relocated back into America. And as uh, before we start, you know, move along into actually getting into your book and sort of the uh, this latest book, especially, and what sort of prompted you to write it and some of the, the thought and, and its practical implications. Um, can you give us a little bit of backstory on on yourself and, you know, what what led you to actually go to the field to work where you did and what sort of started this whole process to begin writing in this subject and understanding it more? Oh, sure, absolutely. I'll just share a little bit and then feel free to ask me to expand on anything. Uh, I uh, did not grow up in, you know, any kind of a Christian home, you know, whatsoever. There was no going to church, no Christian culture, you know, in our home, a lot of dysfunction. Um, so I, I, I didn't have any of that sort of background. Uh, but uh, so I didn't have this ambition to one day, you know, be a theologian or a pastor or a missionary or anything of that nature. But uh, I did finally become a believer later in high school. And uh, I, I felt a sense to go into some kind of vocational ministry. And the only word I knew was pastor. It never occurred to me to think of being a theologian or or, or uh, even or, or missionary. But so, so sometime early on in, in 
in my marriage after we had, I had just finished my first degree in philosophy. We we're trying to figure out what to do out of the blue, honestly, out of the blue. Uh, it was a, you know, I feel like we're supposed to go to China. Huh. I mean, there literally was nothing, <laughs> no kind of precursor to that. No sort of like, ah, I'm wrestling with this for a while or not even the, oh, I'm wrestling with missions. They just know that was something that was something that other people did. And that was great. I was for that. But it just never was something I thought for me personally. And I remember being in the church parking lot and saying, you know, I think we're supposed to go to China. And my wife was was like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> and uh, and the only connection we had to China at all is that we knew we had some friends in college who had taught English there for a couple of years. I mean, that was it. So, so uh, we go there and um, I grew up in East Texas, which is an honor shame culture in its own right. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, and so what the first two years were a bit of an adjustment for me because I'm, I was a math major, like I said, a, a master's in philosophy. So I'm a real logical guy. Yeah. So when you, when you got that calling in the church parking lot, where you felt like God spoke you to, uh, spoke that to you, what role did the, did that church and its leadership have in helping you to, you know, obey that calling? You know, it wasn't the local church that had impact because actually the local church, uh, while they, they waved the banner of missions, they, uh, it wasn't a big emphasis. In fact, uh, the local pastor once said in a staff meeting, uh, we're first going to reach Jerusalem before we worry about, you know, Samaria and so right, forth. So right. okay. it wasn't so much them, but it was the influence of the passion movement Okay, and, you know, desiring God and and things of that nature, you know, I went to, I think it was the second passion and the first one day, and there was a big emphasis on missions. And that was really what put it in even a, even a mental marker in my mind to, so that when the idea came to my mind, it, it was something that I go, yeah, yeah, that's something worth doing as opposed to, you know, what's that? Right. Uh, so, so that's, so that's actually the bigger influence. Are you talking about Louis Giglio's teaching on missions and yeah, the, the, the passion conference in one day because, uh, passion, you know, those conferences have a really big emphasis on missions. And also I had read and heard a lot of Piper. And so, uh, it gave me an impression of what missions was and the value of missions, even though I never personally considered it something that was for us, but it was something I said, yeah, this is an important thing. And so that's why I think for both of us, when we said, oh, we're supposed to go, it was like, okay, let's just do it. There was no wrestling with it. It was a, all right, this is what we need to do. So when you went, I mean, there was an entity that, that you know, facilitated that happening, right? And were there connections with churches, lo other local churches that you, you know, developed some sort of relationship with? Yes. Uh, our, our home church uh, did uh, support us uh, financially and we had people, pockets of people in the church who were very faithful and loyal to uh, praying for us, sending us, uh, you know, emails, you know, uh, whatever was needed uh, financially, whatever was needed. So there was typically a very small pocket of people who were really, really dedicated. They were the people who, you know, a lot of times for missionaries, when you leave, there's this out of sight, out of mind thing where people just forget that you're over there. Right. But this, this was a core group of people who advocated for us big time. Um, and they were they were people who were on the missions committee, and they really genuinely cared about about us, and always kept us in people's minds. It wasn't from the top, 
as it was from strong lay leadership. So at the time when you went over, were you already were you already considered a theologian? You already had your degrees in theology and, and in place? When we first went over, I had uh, my, my bachelor's in mathematics and a master's in philosophy. That's all. And, uh, and then I did uh, my MDiv partly on the field and then partly at like stateside times. And that was at Gordon-Conwell. And then I did uh, my PhD in a cohort where I would go back for three weeks to a month for class intensives, but then do all the research and writing and whatnot uh, on the field. Good. So, so you land on the field over there. This is like 20 years ago, right? Yeah, 2003. Uh, In fact, we were there when SARS came. Oh, right. Um, Yeah. And we were there, uh, I think one of the first weeks, one of the first weeks we were there, we were doing an English corner because we were doing some teaching English. And it was when the United States invaded Iraq. (laughs) And uh, so so we were were cornered by all these students going, why are you invading Iraq? And why are you attacking this nation? And I kept saying, I'm not invading anybody. I'm just, I'm I'm here. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it was, uh, anyways, it was, it took me a little bit to adjust to to understand the culture because it was, practically speaking, one of my very first cross-cultural experiences, it doesn't matter what your family background is or whatever else. I mean, uh, you know, say Chinese in say San Francisco or New York are different than Chinese in the mainland and Taiwan and Singapore. I mean, these are different cultures and the mainland culture is a distinct part of it, of Chinese diaspora or not, I mean, Chinese culture, uh, not diaspora. So, I had a hard time with it. And I told my wife after a couple of years, um, you know, I'm not, not proud of this, but this is a quote, uh, over my dead body. Will I ever go back to that God for second country? <laughs> wow. That's honest, man. I love that. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, I'd say, well, f- fortunately we believe in resurrections. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, because I, I just, you know, just the stress of crossing cultures uh, got the better of me. And for a year, that was basically the only thing my wife and I argued about was whether we stay or go. And um, we came back after two years. I just need to finish up a little of my MDiv. And it was there that God changed my heart. And I gone back with a plan to like church plant and support missions that way. And one of the things that really had a big impact on me was I remember talking to a guy at the swings and we were having this kind of conversation and I said, I want to send people, you know, to, to the mission field. And he said, well, why can't you send Chinese, you know, like, go to China, make missionaries out of them, send them. And I had no answer. And I just remember kind of the wind taken out of me going, yeah, why can't I do that? Right. Yeah. Well, during your first two, two years there, did you get into language study? No, nope, that was, and that's pro- part of the problem is uh you when you don't know the language you people tend to interpret anything that's unfamiliar in negative terms um and so so i I did you know i didn't do that my wife did a little bit but that was just survival so that was with an english teaching organization and once we decided that we wanted to go long term we uh switched organizations uh to one that we said that we could kicked out easier um, I mean, that's, that was literally our mentality. Like we want to push the envelope. We want to do what people, you know, what most is necessary, what's most challenging, whatever else. So 
when we came back, we were doing uh, church planting and we started a underground seminary, a seminary for underground churches. And that's a that's accredited. And that's actually uh, the challenging part. I frequently tell people every gray hair I have comes from that process. Okay. <laughs> but you did eventually learn the language when you went back after the first hitch, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was a full... Yeah, so tell us about that. Oh, it was a full dive in. I'm not a natural language learner. I'm you know, math, very analytical. Uh, I don't like sounding like a three-year-old. <laughs> uh, you know, and my wife, you know, she's, she doesn't make, she doesn't care if she makes mistakes at all, you know? Just, and so, uh, and so I, you know, I had to accommodate my own way uh, of doing it. So I, I did a very analytical, I learned grammar things first and I filled with a little vocabulary and I made lists of most common words and all those kind of things that helped me to be comfortable. Um, but uh, I focused a lot on theological vocabulary early on, contrary to everyone else's uh, rebu rebuking me for that. They said, oh, let's worry about normal daily language. And I said, I can always point to food, but I can't just, you know, casually talk about, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, ecclesiology or salvation or whatever these topics are, you know. So uh, but it turned out well, because after about two years or two and a half years, uh, that's when the opportunity finally opened itself to be a part of a team that started uh, the seminary. Okay. Now, that's obviously a, a different level of Chinese because our school did all Chinese uh, teaching. There was no English, uh, no translations or, at all. And that was quite the learning process because you, you can only think at a high level at one thing at a time. So if you think about the language, you're not necessarily thinking about the material or the, what the students' needs are. And so I had to think of all kinds of uh, hacks, as it were, you know, workarounds to make my, my notes proficient so that I could think about the material and what the students need. Um, and so like my notes, because English is my first language, I had my notes in English, but I would put them in Chinese grammar. And so that as I'm looking at my notes, I could translate on the spot uh, and then I just, you know, throw in phrases or whatever else I, if I really thought I'd need it. And since we did intensive classes, as the week went on, I put more and more Chinese in my notes uh, because I knew my mind would get tired and it, I would need to compensate for that. Anyways, those are just a few, a few little, you know, uh, tricks. Yeah, I but the, the upside of it is eventually you, you know, you, you taught in Mandarin at a seminary and you, you totally navigate all day, every day in the language, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and eventually, you know, I, like anyone else, I had the school tutors or whatever else, but eventually I had several uh, pastors and church leaders that I would work with each week. And so I could be in constant dialogue on, on these things, not just like vocabulary words. What's that word? Okay, great. But really diving in and delving into the mindset uh, and the background of these words. And I always made sure I had uh, you know, maybe two or three tutors at a time because, you know, one person doesn't represent a whole culture. I oftentimes would have tutors who disagreed, you know, on what one word meant and what, what connotations were and what the best word was for it. And so uh, that was a really constructive process. So in that process, then I'm assuming like when, when, when I was on the field and trying to get a handle on the language of where we were at, as you get into the language and you're learning, you know, what, what are the sort of the values that 
that produce the cultural traits that you're interacting with, it started to it obviously bled over into your understanding of how to communicate biblical truth to to these people, and then at some point realizing that that the way they frame things and understand things is from a radically different perspective than we have here in America. So can you kind of unpack for us that sort of progression, how that came about to where you started to really look at that kind of thing and start writing about it and trying to communicate it to others? Yeah, one of the things that really got my attention about when it came to honor, shame, and the value of Eastern culture was very early on when I realized that the word sin was translated as crime. And what it meant was to say that someone was a sinner, you had to say, hey, you're a criminal. And people had a, that was a really big obstacle for people. And so I, I, I thought, you know, if we can't get sin right, we can't explain sin properly, we can't get the gospel right. We can't get a whole lot of other things right. And so that's what initially provoked my thinking. And also because of my uh, exposure to John Piper and his talking about the glory of God, I thought, you know, this honor shame society over here, seems like it could really help us to understand a lot of this talk about glory in the Bible. And it seems like this theme should really pervade all sorts of doctrines rather than just like kind of a tag on, you know, to like some doctrine or teaching, you know, yada, 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 to the glory of God. It seemed like it needed to be far more pervasive and shaping uh, over our theology. And because I grew up also in East Texas in, in a very honor, shame oriented family, especially, I started realizing that, wait a minute, this is just like, you know, Southern culture in many ways, Chinese culture, except the rules are different. Uh, and so it's just a matter of trying to realize uh, uh, what those differences were, because, but the underlying pattern of, of culture was the same. So that's what got me into the topic. When I got into the language learning, of course, I realized actually how deep that cultural pull went. And when you realize all the different uh, subtleties and nuances of terms, the various idioms and the various cultural stories, um, how, you know, how uh, people perceive each other, understanding filial piety and stuff like that. Uh, and even just indirect communication is is a very consistent aspect of honor sh shame cultures, uh, traditional honor shame cultures. So yeah, the, the language just simply deepened that in ways I could not have imagined from the beginning. One of the things that I that I appreciate about the way you write and in the you know the few interactions that I've had with you personally is your theology is coming out uh, you know coming from the actual context. Uh, that you're living in, you're, that you 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 that you're trying to you know you're trying to unpack truths about who God is to people you know in in a day to day context, and so you know what as, as this as your thinking progressed and as you began to understand more and more of of this facet of of God and the way He interacts with humanity and and especially with that you know those portions of humanity that He created to have you know to be operating according to honor, shame sort of principles. What, what sort of moved you to, to, to write your first book then, you know, Saving God's Face? Well, Saving God's Face is the uh, published version of my dissertation. And I, spe I specifically went into a PhD program with the goal, uh, kind of a twofold goal. The main goal was to figure out how to articulate uh, the doctrine of salvation in terms of honor and shame. And so like that, that was centerpiece to everything that is important for us. Uh, but then, but then secondly, 
I wanted to try to really flesh out in practical terms what it looked like to do theological contextualization. I, I felt so many books uh, came up to this culture and uh, Bible tension and then just stopped there and maybe left you at principles. But for me, I, the way I put it is I wanted you to kind of have a put up or shut up moment, you know, for me to where you go, hey, how do you actually do this? What would this look like? And so that's what motivated that work. And doing it in China was extraordinarily helpful because for, I was very, very committed uh, in my process of studying and researching this, that every sort of insight and thought I had, I was going to filter through many, 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 many uh, people, whether it be Chinese pastors, lay persons, missionaries, whatever else. I was just going, I was just going to be in constant dialogue uh, and just and, and see what people said. I didn't want to just go with just just my instincts and what I theorized. And because I was starting to do a lot more teaching with the seminary. I was able to have real concentrated times of dialogue with people. And so that's one reason why, uh, uh, actually, you know, it's well known that, uh, that I use a pseudonym that it's one reason why I, I had the pseudonym that I picked was because I, I wanted something that represented the voice that I was speaking on behalf of all these different pastors and church leaders who were sharing these things and talking and processing. And cause the truth is, is it's not like I come up with all this. This stuff's in the Bible, for one. And two, uh, I'm simply pulling together many, many, many voices of people in, in conversations, uh, of people who said, as we process, they said, this is so Chinese. We really need to, to get this out more. So when you were doing that, did you, um, and, and, and I love that idea that you sort of vetted, you know, what you were coming up with through local pastors and, and other people there that were in the context that you're living in and sort of writing from within, when you shared that with them and, and you wanted their input and stuff, did they, now I'm curious as to their response on the sort of on the emotional level, like, Hey, finally, somebody's wrestling with issues that we just haven't seen in the theology and stuff we've heard from other Americans and other Westerners. Was, was there any kind of gratitude that somebody's finally looking at this from the perspective that you are? Well, a couple of things on that. What's interesting is that interacting with Chinese on this stuff is way easier than interacting with uh, Westerners. Westerners offer a lot of resistance, a lot of objections, and there's a lot of deconstruction going on. With Chinese, with Chinese, I find uh, a far more quick uh, acceptance. Uh, very early on, I get, wow, this is so Chinese. Like, where did you get this? Uh, um, I've never, I've never thought of this, but this is, I mean, it's, it's people have said, uh, your, your theology is nine, is more Chinese than 99% of Chinese pastors. Uh, and, and so people, uh, were just, they, they were just so hungry for, it. and so, I, you know, we did week intensive classes. And then I remember one of my favorite stories was it was a week intensive Monday through Friday, and it was a Wednesday night. And by Wednesday night, they're exhausted. I mean, nobody, you know, and I could tell they were struggling and tired. And so I, I just called an audible and said, I'm going to go honor shame on them <laughs> and just and just talk about honor shame stuff as it relates to whatever the topic was. All of a sudden they woke up. I mean, just started raising their hands and, and interacting like like crazy, which if you talk mainland Ch Chinese 
they don't, they're not big into participation. They want to listen, take the notes. Uh, and it was just so fun just to watch them come alive on a Wednesday night of a week intensive. They, they were more active that night than they were any other time. Just, they were so enthused by it. The other response I get, intriguingly, is people will say certain pastors, especially ones who've been Christians for a while, they'll say, well, this is not, this is not traditional. And what they're concerned with is preserving tradition because that's what uh, Western Christianity has always told them and Western missionaries and whatever else. And in an honor shame culture, the value of authority and tradition is a really big deal. And so ironically, their honor shame culture was preventing them initially from accepting an honor shame theology. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I expound on that a bit more. Unpack that a little more. That's a key point. Yeah. Because they said, you know, the Westerners and, and, and are the uh, authorities. I think they, they've had Christianity around for a long time. Much of Christianity is coming out of the West, a lot of it. A lot of theology is coming. And so, you know, novelty is not a big Chinese value. You know, it's preserving that tradition and, and respecting ancestors of the church and so forth. And so when you say something that doesn't kind of parrot those ideas, and in fact, in some ways feels like it's challenging them, uh, it feels like a threat. And But yet at the same time, they felt this tension to go, this feels so right. Like this makes a whole lot of sense. And especially when they're seeing all these texts again and again and again about honor, glory, shame, so forth. I had one guy say, everything you're teaching is absolutely right and it's absolutely biblical, but I can't teach it. I said, well, 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 why? He said, because my, my partners, like my, uh, they call them their Tongong, they're like ministry partners. Uh, they won't like this. And so they were so afraid of like losing face with some of their more traditional partners. And I just, of course, process with them. Well, just show them the scripture and help them see that it's not an either or. <laughs> uh, and I'm a big believer in, um, you know, Chinese culture talks a lot about the middle way, you know, and trying to find a middle path. And yeah, explain that a little bit more too. what that means, the middle way. And why? Why that's why that's a significant Chinese um, cultural trait. Chinese culture uh, really values harmony, harmony in relationships, for example, uh, social relationships, but also in Chinese philosophy. Uh, there's been this big emphasis on nature uh, that there's balance in nature, and we should learn from that. And so it's kind of created this principle of we need to find the middle way between extremes. You know, don't be too this way, don't be too that way. Trying to find some way some way in the middle to kind of mediate positions because most time extreme reactions are not constructive. And they're very, they're very wise and practical in terms of the interpersonal relationships. They really take a long-term mindset. Well, uh, when it comes to say theology, the West uh, really has uh, pressed dichotomies in almost every sphere of theology and missiology and whatnot where it's either this way or that way. And if you say anything that doesn't sound like my way, you must be against me and crazy extreme the other way. That's oftentimes the way it comes down. Um, and so I'm always, I think that just that kind of Eastern mentality in me says, 
well, you know, what's the truth of the, of the other side? Yes, I, I tend to be on this, you know, say on the right side, but where's the truth then on the left side? I frequently tell people even heretics aren't idiots. You know, they, they frequently will have some decent insight or concern, but then they go off track somewhere. And so it doesn't necessarily mean it's right down the middle, but maybe it's somewhere in the middle. Maybe it's not that I'm entirely wrong, but maybe I have a blind spot and they can help me broaden my perspective. Um, or maybe I have true theology, true ideas, but maybe I've overemphasized some points. Uh, and maybe, and maybe it's maybe the minor emphasis in a text. And if I really follow the track of thought, I will see this aspect that's always been in the text, but I just kept overlooked it. So I don't, you don't, you won't hear me do a lot of either, or I tend to do a lot of both ands. Um, not, not simply because I'm trying to be conciliatory and just everybody's right. Everybody's true, but that just, it's just the truth is we all have limited understandings and perspective and, and we need each other's input. And I want to find the value in whatever truth is in some other, someone else's opinion. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed the time spent with Jackson Wu as much as we did. Check back to our website soon for part two of this interview with Jackson Wu. 